Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, American Cowboy in New Zealand. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. Hey there, everybody. Thanks for jumping on and tuning in. Looking forward to sharing this conversation with you for quite some time now. And uh, Jeff and I really enjoyed catching up, and I loved hearing more about his story. So this this uh, episode will actually be two episodes. This conversation will be divided into two episodes, parts one and two, as our conversation went on for nearly nearly two hours. And we still got more stuff to cover. We'll have him on again sometime. So. Be sure and catch uh, catch part two as well. The other thing I want to let you know is this will be our last episode for 2021, and we're going to wrap this up and call it our first season. So these two episodes here with Jeff Sanders' interview will be the last episodes for our first season of American Cowboy in New Zealand. Hope you're enjoying it. Now sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Jeff Sanders. Jeff Sanders is uh, a sixth generation Californian who's uh, passionate about the horsemanship of the California Vaquero and shares that same passion that I do and quite a few different passions with the history and, and of course, the stockmanship and roping that go into that. Um, Jeff and I are really, really both share that passion. And I count Jeff as one of my mentors and the guys that I look up to and I kind of go to for some advice and stuff. And, and I've ridden with Jeff and I just counted a privilege, Jeff. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to be here today and visit with us and share some of your history and some of your, your wisdom for us. So, um, Jeff. No problem. I'm glad, glad we were able to get it all coordinated with everybody's schedules yeah yes sir it takes it takes a bit of doing with a couple of international um schedules and yeah. uh, the time differences and stuff is pretty interesting so it's um what is it about nine in the morning yeah uh, tuesday there yeah because i'm back in europe now but when we originally started talking about putting this together i was over in nevada or california or somewhere at the time so yeah trying to coordinate everything's a little tricky it is a tricky business for sure. So Jeff, tell us a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit familiar with your, your upbringing. You always talk about growing up and the riding you did, but maybe just fill us in with a brief history of your, of your childhood and how horses played a part in that. And, uh, and we'll go from there. Okay. Sounds good. Well, for me growing up, the horses, the horsemanship, pretty much everything centered around that from, from before I was born. I mean, my mom's got a picture of her about nine months pregnant with, with me and she's horseback. So um, it was just a, a central part of, of our life. Um, my mom and dad both trained horses. Um, they were both in, in the show arena at the time um, in various, you know, various disciplines, that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of the central core of our life was the horses, the horsemanship, everything revolved around that growing up. And really for my family, that was the case for a long time for, like you said, about six generations. Um, that was kind of the core of everybody's life in the family. So for me growing up, 
this stuff that we're doing, you know, with our horsemanship stuff, it was just normal life. That was just, I thought that's what everybody did. Um, and my dad's still that way with this horsemanship stuff. My wife, whenever we go visit, she's funny because she'll always say, man, he just doesn't think there's anything special about this, you know, any of this horsemanship stuff. I'm like, well, for him, it's just, you know, it's like getting a cup of coffee in the morning. That's just all normal, yeah. normal stuff because from the, the, your earliest memories all revolve around the horses, the horsemanship, the cattle work, um, you know, whether it's the horses, the cows, the dogs, whatever it is, it's all a central part of our life. So, yeah. That philosophy then, you know, becomes so ingrained. And like you say, it's second nature. It's, it's first nature. Yeah. You don't even, it is. You, you think that way and you don't know that other people don't think that way. Yeah. And that's actually been a, a real journey for me and my teaching is kind of back engineering a bunch of stuff and really trying to think about what is it that I'm doing that I don't even realize I'm doing. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the people brought really brought it to my attention about oh man it's probably been about ten years ago now was Steve Halfpenny. Um, I was teaching a clinic there in Australia and and one afternoon we were doing something and he just kind of stops and he looks at me and he says you just have no idea how much you're doing that you don't even know you're doing. <laughs> and I'm like okay what am I doing? But it really got me thinking and and it's really helped me to not only be able to teach it better, but to understand the foundation of why the traditions are the way they are, why the old vaqueros, why the old Spanish, you know, Baroque kind of horsemanship, why did they do it the way they did? And for me, in horsemanship, I think the most important word in any kind of horsemanship is why. That's it. Everybody, everybody every horseman I think should be a four-year-old child always asking why, why am I doing it this way? Why is this way better? Um, why is my instructor asking me or telling me to do this in a certain way? And the teaching has really helped me to focus on that, which has been good because like I said, for a lot of this, it was just how you did it. It was just normal, Absolutely. just normal stuff. It's like putting your pants on in the morning. It's just, yeah, one leg at a time and away we go. <laughs> I could, I totally agree with that, that the, the why question is just should be right at the front of our minds. And <laughs> if our students, you know, can't uh, understand the why behind what they're being told to do, you know, they've got to understand the, yeah. the principles and the foundational concepts before they Absolutely. can really understand the techniques or the approaches we're going to take. Absolutely. And then so much can change with horsemanship where, things sometimes become more about fashion and less about function. And when we understand that, we understand why certain people train the way they do, that it's more specific sport focused and maybe not general horsemanship focused. It kind of helps us prevent that, that really common mistake of just being blown to the winds of whatever fashion of the day happens to be popular. And then the other, for me, if I'm working with somebody because I take lessons too. I mean, I think anybody, any horseman that doesn't take lessons, their horsemanship kind of dies. Um, I won't take lessons from anybody who won't answer the why question. If, if I ask why and they get offended or they can't answer it or won't answer it, then I'm going to take my money elsewhere. Um, 
because that is the most that, that's the fundamental question yeah so growing up then you um you were horseback a lot what kind of stuff did you do what was your experiences what you said your folks were training horses what did that sort of look like and how did that evolve as you got older into your teenage or, or becoming a young man well uh growing up my my folks uh split up when i was about five but it didn't matter if i was visiting my dad um you know or if i i stayed with my mom i lived with my mom and her she made her living teaching lessons, um, working with students, uh, showing, doing all of that stuff. And so every day when I got home from school, there were lessons going on in the arena. And, you know, I was running around the barn, getting in everybody's hair, getting in everybody's way. Um, <laughs> but I also had, you know, I don't know, I think I was nine, about nine when my mom first uh, bought me a couple ponies to start and to train. And as a project to, we bought them. I, my job or my, you know, the thing was I would train and work on them and then we'd sell them. Yeah. And then I got to keep the money for a new bike or whatever I wanted. Yeah. So that was kind of my first introduction into the business uh, part of it at, at like <laughs> nine. Um, on, on my dad's side, uh, he was working a lot more cattle than mom. Um, mom. My mom can rope and work cows and everything, but dad was doing a lot more of it. And, but even before that, um, uh, like, I don't know, I must've been about five years old, four or five years old, you know, they got me a pony. And I remember going to the feedlot with my dad working in the pins, the feedlot. And as a little kid, I, you know, as a little kids do, uh, I remember one of the days my pony was giving me a hard time and he's kind of wanting to act up a little bit, man, I was scared to death because I was sure that I was going to come off and those cows were going to stampede and that was going to be it. <laughs> of course I was in it, you know, I was in the pins and the, in it, you know, in the stockyards, but eh, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. 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 So, and that pony was, he was, he was, he was honored. He was not a good pony. And we ended up taking him to the sale and I rode him in the sale and, um, you know, the whole thing where, you know, four or five years old, I rode the pony in the sale and that whole deal. And so I've been doing this for a long time. Um, in, in California, at San Luis Obispo, there's, uh, uh, Cal Poly University there has their cattle program. Uh, my dad kind of started the cattle program there. And it's been some years ago, but uh, probably 15 years ago or so, I was there and in the hallway, still at the dean's office, there's a picture of the cattle program. And my dad's in the picture, my mom's in the picture, and little four-year-old me is in the picture um, at a Brandon, um, sitting there eating, eating donuts. Um, so, you know, it, it, this goes back a ways. Yeah. And when we look at this kind of moving forward through this, um, my dad always had the cows. We roped a lot. Um, my dad, a big part of, of his show experience and his, um, what he did was the cow work. Um, in the 60s, 70s, you know, he was leading the, what would have been considered the world then. It was California was the world in the rain work and cow at the time. Yeah. Um, so that was all part of it. Um, we showed pain horses. Um, my dad did the open stuff with the board horses for a while. And then um, we did the paint horses for a long time. So I kind of grew up in the show arena too. So at my dad's, we'd go brand, you know, go to brandings. And I think the first branding I roped in, I was probably about eight years old. Um, and it was a great experience. I remember being a frustrated little kid because I couldn't catch the calves. Yeah. And I remember side passing over to this calf and I just took my rope and I just threw it down on the calf's head. And I was, you know, 
and it, and I caught it. And I remember everybody, not just my dad, but some of the, you know, some of the, to me, they were old guys. Um, yeah. But I was like eight saying, yeah, that's it. Good. You rode your horse. You put your horse there. Make your horse go where you want him to go and then worry about the roping. And that was a, an important lesson from the very beginning, from eight years old, that the horsemanship was more important than, than the roping. And yeah. when your horsemanship is good, everything else becomes easier. And that carried through. We showed, you know, when I was a teenager, I think I was 12 when I started uh, riding client horses, when I started getting paid to ride, to train and to show. And, um, and then that just carried through, you know, most kids, they, they've got their summer job, whether it's working at a fast food place or gas station or whatever. Mine was riding horses. And at the time as a teenager, I was showing against all of, um, I was showing in the youth, but also I was showing a lot in the open, um, riding client horses, showing against the, against the big boys. And I was just too young and dumb to realize that I should have been worried about it. So um, that was kind of the experience growing up. Yeah. Um, and then both my parents kind of got out of the showing stuff around the mid eighties. A lot of it had to do with the change of the horsemanship and the way people were showing the way people were riding. And neither one of my parents were very happy with it. Yeah. And they both got out of it at the time. And when they did, I kind of did too. Um, and then we, like I shifted as a teenager, um, I kind of shifted in high school away from the, the show arena so much and focused a lot more on the high school rodeo stuff. So um, for the people watching this there in New Zealand or wherever they happen to be watching it, um, in America, in the US, at least in the Western states, I think no in uh, the East too, because Florida and everywhere, um, the high schools, a lot of them have rodeo teams. So it's an organized school sport. And I was on the rodeo team for all four years of high school. So I really focused on that. And um, I kind of credit the success both in the show arena and the rodeo arena with the old, following a lot of the principles of that old California horsemanship. Um, I made some big mistakes as I went through that that phase um eventually i turned pro i was roping on the professional rodeo cowboys association circuit um team roping and i look back now and i would have done a lot better if i had focused more on those core principles um i still won quite a bit team roping i mean one of the years i made probably 90 percent of my income was was roping but i would have done a lot better if i had gone back and really focused on that real foundation uh training that um that i focus on a lot more now yeah so i think that's kind of a, a bit of a rundown anyway yeah um, yeah for sure for sure yeah so most of the showing that in in your family's experience there was that mostly reined cow horse that they did actually it was all around um my dad kind of really made his reputation both with the bridle horses um and with the all around so um, one of the, um, if somebody, if anybody wants to do a Google search, you can look up a pain horse stallion named Gambling Man. Um, you, a lot of people watching this have actually seen pictures of him and may not even have known it. He, um, he's really unique in his coloring. Like the top half of, was black and the bottom half was white. He's a really unique looking horse. But my dad actually is the one who got all of the, the championships, all the points on that horse. Um, in multiple, um, multiple disciplines. 
from brain working cow horse to uh, the roping, heading, healing, calf roping, um, all the way through with the jumping, trail, the whole deal. Right. So um, my family really started, um, my dad's main focus when I was really young was the rain working cow horse. Um, but then he and my mom both really did a lot of, of different stuff. My mom didn't show rain working cow horse so much. Um, she, I think she won the world in trail and some other, led the world in some other stuff. But um, it was really about the all around. It was, it was, um, it was about, about really making a good horse that could do a lot of different things well. They may not be the ultimate master at any one thing, but they were very proficient at everything. And if the foundation is good, it's not that hard to take a, a it was back then anyway, a, a good bridle horse that you were doing well in the rain work and cow horse and take that same horse and go jump them. Um, you know, we did it all the time. Now there's a couple little tricks to it in terms of your gear. You might take a, a like an English style bridle and have the mouthpiece change. So it's the same mouthpiece the horse is using with their, their regular, you know, Garcia bit or whatever it is. There's some of those little tricks, but other than that, the foundation, it's the same foundation. So that was kind of growing up. We did everything. I mean, I, I jumped horses, um, you know, put on the little monkey suit and yeah, and took horses over fences. And um, again, I, I, it was a bit of an adrenaline rush. So I loved it. It was, it was fun. And, yeah. but, you know, literally one day we're jumping the same horse that we're winning the, the raining and the rain working cow horse on, we're jumping the next day. Um, and that wasn't uncommon at the time, especially in California. Um, the other thing that was really common was that the horses like that my dad won the world in the rainwork and cow horse. Well, this weekend he's showing rainwork and cow horse class. Next weekend we're at a branding and the next weekend we're at, at like the Fiesta Rodeo in Santa Barbara where we're team roping, we're in the calf branding events. And he's still showing him in the rain working cow horse. We're doing everything on the same horse. And that was, that was normal um, up through the eighties. It's changed a lot now. Everything's a lot more specialized, but back then that was pretty normal. I think that's awesome. I mean, quarter horses are known for their versatility and, and a good stock horse or a good bridle horse. I mean, they're just um, the practical versatility. I just really think that that is a hallmark and just such a, core thing that's that's really really awesome so for you as you got into your 20s and you're doing the prca uh how did how did things evolve from there what what happened after that well at the time when i was in my 20s i was pretty stupid (laughs) 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 i was pretty focused on winning i mean for me it was I, i i was focused on you know the winning the winning the buckles and the saddles and the horse trailers and the money and I mean, that was my focus. I, I was, I got, honestly, I got really bad about, about being very, um, very competition focused um, to the point where at the first of the year, uh, first of the year, first thing was, okay, let's find where, where we're going to win the belt buckle for this year. Because you had to, at the time, you had to have a buckle from that year or yeah, that's not good. So it was the first thing where they given a good buckle and it wasn't just a buckle. It was where they given a good one. And then, okay, you go win that buckle. The next thing is, okay, well, I need a new saddle for this year. And, and then after you had your buckle and your saddle, 
Then it was, okay, where are they given a horse trailer or a truck or a lot of money? And I, I mean, I thought I was, I thought I was, I thought I was pretty cool. And I remember one day we were at a big, a big roping, big team roping, pretty big money kind of team roping. And I was pretty proud of myself, man. I got my two horses, right? I got my brand new buckle. Um, each horse is, is packing a, a trophy saddle from that year. I pulled them there in a trophy trailer that I had won that year. I mean, I was, I thought I was it and, you know, pocket full of cash. And I, man, I thought I was, I thought I was it. And my dad looked at me and he just shook his head. He says, you know, I'm, I've never met a really good horseman that was under 40 years old. And he rides away. And I'm like, what was that about? And I, at the time I'm like, yeah, crazy old man, you know, that kind of thing. And, and now I get it. Now I get it. Um, I was so focused on the sport that I lost, I lost the horsemanship. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I didn't, there was some, a lot of things that I saw going on in the sport that I, that in terms of horsemanship that really I didn't like. And I was like, man, I ain't doing that. You know, I'm not going to use a, a, a bicycle chain over a horse's pole to keep him putting his head up, you know, that kind of crazy stuff. But I still didn't focus enough on my horsemanship. Now, granted, that year I took, um, in fact, I think it might have been that same year, I took a bridal horse to the Team Ropa National Finals in Oklahoma, um, roped on her, no tie down. Um, there's pictures, you know, with her in a nice, her nice little Garcia bed and, um, you know, all of that. But I still wasn't focused enough on the horsemanship. And looking back now, if I had been more focused on putting in the extra time really dedicating to, you know, keeping that horsemanship sharp. I, I don't want a whole lot more. Um, you know, I don't want a lot more. And the thing for me, you know, I, I, I meet a lot of people that say, yeah, you know, I used to be really focused on the competition or I did this this way in the past and I just didn't know any better. It's like, yeah, cool. Then, you know, the more, you know, the better you do yeah. for me, I knew better. <laughs> I was, I was taught better. I was just young. You know, I was a young guy in my twenties. You know, I wanted the cash. I wanted the shiny stuff. And, yeah. and I was just dumb. And I look back on it now and I'm like, yeah, that was, uh, that was a mistake. And my dad's comment, looking back now, though, my dad's comment to me came out of his own experience, basically doing the same thing. He went through the same thing I did, which is why he just kind of shook his head, made the comment he did, and then just rode off because he knew. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just part of the, it, that's, Yeah. He'll outgrow it or he won't. And that was kind of the thing. So, yeah. Um, and then I, from there, I got, I got a little burned out, to be honest with you. Um, at one point, I was rodeoing. And then I, I had a barn, barn you know, with students and customer horses. And was riding outside horses and starting colts and you know, doing all that stuff. And, and I just got burned out. And, um, and I, uh, there was a specific incident that really... I, I made me completely quit the whole business. I mean, I, I shut it all down. And what happened, I had a student, I had a customer who had a little girl that was showing it with the pain horses. And um, in the pain horse, um, in the pain horse world, for those that aren't familiar, uh, court horse the same way. Uh, but the youth, they have the, the age bracket, 13 years old and under and 14 through 18. And then you go to either amateur or open or whatever you do. And this little girl was her last year in 13 and under. She was 13 years old, it was her last year. She'd done really well, but her parents wanted her to really have the opportunity to, to win a world championship. 
so they said they 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 had been riding with me for a little bit and they came to me and said hey we, we really want her to have this opportunity and we're going to spend whatever it's going to take to make that happen so okay fair enough um found him a nice horse um the horse had previously won the pinto world in a couple of different events so everything was you know very good proven horse I think the price tag was around 35,000 and that was um, like the nineties. So, you know, adjust that for inflation. Um, And we did the vet check. And when we did the vet check, there was just something about the way the horse moved in the right hind leg. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but there was just something not quite right. And I told him, I said, you know what? I, I'd get a full set of extras on, on that high leg. He's not lame. I, I can't even tell you what it is, but I just there's something I'm not liking about. So we did a full set of x-rays. Sure enough, it turns out he's got a bone spur in his heart. And talking to the vet and the vet told him flat out, he said, well, we can do some, you know, there's some stuff we can do for maintenance. Um, but if you campaign this horse hard and you show him hard this next year, that's going to be it. He's going to break, break down. He'll be done. And the mother looked at the vet and said, well, I don't care as long as she wins next year. And that was it. I, I was like, no, but you're, you're going to sacrifice this horse. Cause the vet told him if you, if this horse, if we, if, you know, somebody takes it easy on this horse, maybe has, has a surgery done, this horse should have, you know, a nice long life and be able to, um, you know, be able to be ridden for a lot longer, you know, yeah. for, you know, yeah. Do 10, 15 anyway. more years. Um, she said she didn't care as long as her, as long as her daughter won that year. And, and that was it. I was done. A friend of mine, he was, um, it was his customer who had the horse for sale. I looked at him, um, his name, he passed, he's passed away some years ago. His name was Rusty Paris. For those people involved in the paint horse industry, they um, have been in it for a while. They know who he is. I just looked at Rusty and said, that's it. I'm done. Commission's yours. I'm out. And he said, what? I said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I got in my truck and I left. And that was it. I was, I was done. He called me and he said, man, are you, you're okay. I said, yeah, I, I just can't do this. I said, this, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, the way that things are going, I, I just can't do it. And I got out of the business completely. Um, I was riding my own horses, uh, shooing some horses, doing some other stuff, just, you know, but basically I just, I went to ride my own. I got out of the business completely because of that um because i didn't think i could make a living in the show world without sacrificing my principles and i just wasn't willing to do it um and that was a big turning point for me um and for another reason too and that is that i then really started focusing on my own horsemanship just for the sake of the horsemanship i was still roping i'd still go i'd still go team rope for fun you know just yeah go to jackpot go have some fun but I started focusing more on the horsemanship because I wasn't, I wasn't worried about training for a specific event. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the, that's kind of the basic rundown of it. Yeah. 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 That's long that's, answer to a short question. I have a lot. I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is certainly a turning point. And uh, you know, it's in, always interesting looking back, you know, and you can sort of see where that's a fork in the road, but you know, yeah. when you're in it, in the middle of it, you know, and, and especially if you've had to make a stand for your principles in a situation like that and make a call like that, that's a, that's can be a tough thing to do, but I don't think that, I don't think most people regret it when they have, I know I've not regretted no. it when you do that, no. you know, and it brings, 
it brings about change. It brings about different things, but you're not going to yeah. regret making a stand for principles like that. No, so what, what happened next? What did, what did that sort of uh, evolve into then? You know, it, it kind of went a whole bunch of different directions. Um, I was doing some day work. Um, I'd even go from California all the way to Wyoming just to go help my cousin's brand and, you know, that kind of stuff. But going to help them brand, when I say that, um, we're talking about uh, 6,000 head of cattle. So it's not just a weekend of branding, you know, it's, um, you're going through about 600 calves a day um, for two weeks kind of thing. So yeah. it was worth the drive, you know, um, yeah. but it, for me anyway, uh, at the time, it kind of took a lot of pressure off because one of the things, and, and my, both my parents have always said the hardest part of the horse business isn't the horses. Um, I had kind of allowed my customers to put time pressure on me. And, and I, I say it that way for a reason that I allowed it to happen. But like you said, when you're in it at the time, you kind of don't realize it. But by stepping back, I realized that I, I did. I allowed them um, to put that pressure on me. And it's, it's really hard not to. Anybody that's been, that's trained horses for a living knows that you know, they're sitting behind their computer screens or on their phones right now, shaking their head going, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I get it. Um, it. It's a lot harder training the customers sometimes than it is training the horses. And I had good examples. Um, so that's probably part of why I was getting so frustrated up to that breaking point. Um, I remember watching my mom almost lose a really important customer because um, she told him that the horse that he wanted her to take the show wasn't ready. And she just refused to take the horse. She said, the horse isn't ready. I'm not taking him. And, and at the time I mean, he was, he threatened to quit her and she couldn't afford to lose him, but she stood, she stood by her principles. And in the long run, he thanked her for it later. Yeah. Um, and I watched my dad, you know, he'd be getting ready to get a horse ready for a, a specific, you know, show or series of shows and it'd come time to to go and he'd say no that one's staying home and he'd already have him entered i mean he was already entered and he'd say no he's it ain't gonna work he ain't ready and he'd leave him home and that was a big part of why i had been getting a little frustrated up until that breaking point um because of that pressure and i was i was i was i was young and i just didn't know how to quite handle that and I, honestly, I was worried about paying my bills. If, I, if I'm being completely honest, I was worried about paying sure. my bills. Yeah. Um, so for me, when, I, when that time pressure was removed and now I'm riding my own horses, it was like this big weight was lifted off my shoulder where I'm like, cool, I can take as much time as I want. Yeah. It doesn't matter if this horse is at, from point A to point B in, in a week, a month or a year. It doesn't matter, it's my horse. Yeah. And that changed my horsemanship in a lot of ways. Um, it, it, it allowed me the time to really, to really think about how my horse was, was responding to different kinds of training, um, to different kinds of signals, because it wasn't about, I got to make this horse do X, Y, and Z. It was about, let me see how I can get the horse to do X, Y, and Z with the least amount of stress and anxiety for both of us. You know, I mean, that was really what it came down to. It wasn't performance driven. It was 
results driven, but with a long-term strategy. So it really started me thinking more long-term. One of the big problems that everybody who, who takes horses in training, um, we, all, we all do this. We get in a short-term mindset because we know in reality, the customer isn't going to leave that horse for this for 10, 20 years. It ain't going to happen. I mean, it's, you know, um, I, I, one of the best customers I ever had, he left this horse with me to start and he left him with me for a year. And I thought that was so awesome. And I look back now and I'm like, yeah, we should have, we should have stretched that out even further, you know, but it's, it's one of those, as a trainer, we get in that short-term mindset and good horsemanship is not a short-term endeavor. Um, You know, it's, it's anybody that wants quick, instant results, the horsemanship is going to suffer because of it. And so are the horses. Yeah. It's going to add more stress. We're going to end up with more injuries whether we know it or not, we're going to end up with injuries. Um, whether those injuries are legs, in the mouth, um, in the spine, it, you know, it can be any, any number of things. Um, so that's really how that affected my horsemanship is allowing me to go back to that, um, that idea, that idea of manana, that idea of tomorrow. I don't have to get it done today. Um, and, you know, growing up, that concept, I grew up with it but you lose the focus on it sometimes. And that's what it allowed me to do. It really allowed me to take that long-term focus again. And that, that was tremendously helpful. Yeah. Awesome. And then actually everything, even my competition stuff, my competition horses, um, you know, the horses I was roping on got better. When I did start showing again, it, it meant that I went to the show knowing that if I didn't screw it up, the only thing that would keep me from winning is the, the judge not liking the style or whatever my horse was doing. That's it. That, 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 because I had every chance in the world of winning because I knew I was going to go out there and, and do what was asked at the highest level that horse was able to do it uh, because I took the time first. I didn't go out and rush it. Yeah. It wasn't a maybe. I didn't have any question. I didn't ride in the arena with my horse go, oh, please stay together. Please stay together, which we all know that feeling. Um, I rode in the arena going, yeah, uh, as long as I don't screw up, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's pretty cool. And, and, and like you say, that breaking point led to that opportunity and a shift that you wouldn't have seen coming. But of course, looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you can, yeah. you can yeah. see that. So were yeah. you um, doing your day work and, and was, did you, is that when you ended up back in Nevada or what was the time frame with that? And, and sort actually- of how did you keep yourself busy up until the point, I guess, when you, um, well, you know, started teaching or, or, um, how did that all sort of evolve? It, um, well, a couple things that happened. Um, I met a girl moved to Colorado. So I was in Colorado for a couple of years, which was good. Um, was running a boarding stable at the time. Um, was pretty close to where my cousins were. So going over to help day work and stuff and, you know, the Brandons and everything um, was there for a couple of years and then stuff with business and everything shifted and kind of got sideways and then moved to Nevada. Um, in Nevada, I was doing a lot of day work. Um, and then I started taking a couple select uh, cults to start from select people. I wasn't taking a bunch of outside horses, but I had a few and then it was day working for a few friends and for family. So my family um, runs cattle in Nevada. 
So my um, my mom, my stepdad, um, his brothers, they all run cattle there in Nevada. So I was getting quite a bit of day work. And I honestly didn't have enough of my own horses at the time um, to, to really, you know, fill the bill. So having a couple outside horses helped. Plus, that way you kind of double up. Um, yep. The idea of working on some of the big, you know, the big buckaroo outfits never really appealed to me because um, me personally, I mean, it, it's a great opportunity for other people. For me, I just, um, it didn't because I had enough day work. And when you day work, you get paid by the ranch. And when you're riding outside colts, you get paid to ride the colt. So you get paid twice for doing the same job. And I got to ride good horses. When you're working for some of those ranches, you ride whatever they hand you. Yeah. And it ain't always good. So, yeah. um, and growing up, you know, I, I'll admit I was spoiled. I got to ride good horses. But that was a real benefit because I got to learn what it was supposed to feel like. Yeah. You know, what good was supposed to be. When you always ride, a, you know, horses that aren't really good, um, you, it's, it, it's hard to get all the way through the process and really develop a really fine bridle horse when you've never had the opportunity to really ride one. Um, but then, so when we were in Nevada, I was also shoeing a bunch. Um, I was getting under a bunch of horses because that gave me the, the freedom of, of time to schedule however I wanted. Yeah. Um, and it was good money, to be honest, it was paying the bills. Um, and that's kind of, that was kind of the process at the time. I was still roping a little bit here and there. I wasn't competing at the time at all. Um, it wasn't until uh, just towards the end, I didn't really start There, Jeff. We've had a glitch here.
Yar. There we go. Are we back? I think we're back. All right. Where did I lose you? Well, you're saying you're getting towards the end. I think you're going to say of a sort of a season and you're doing a, a lot of shoeing and a little bit of roping and a lot of day work, but yeah. it sounded like you're going to kind of get into the end of that season or something. Okay. Yeah. So, all right, we'll just kind of pick this up in the middle of wherever uh, technical difficulties. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so doing a little bit of roping and shoeing and stuff. Um, and then when I started traveling again um, and teaching, that kind of happened honestly by accident. But at the time I had a pretty good little mare that was working pretty good. And I had taken the time to really, you know, develop her and, and the horsemanship. So I started showing a little bit and um, kind of got back into it a little just for fun. And for me, that was, um, it was kind of cool because it was like, I was going back to what I grew up with, but without the pressure. Um, so I didn't even, when I would compete and if I were to go show today, um, I don't even look at it as a competition anymore. Um, I go write it as an, a demonstration or an exhibition, um, win, lose or draw. Yeah. And one of the things growing up for me that I realized um, eventually after I got out of the rat race, after I jumped off the ha hamster wheel for a little while, was that the judge doesn't matter. Um, and and when, you, when you kind of free yourself up of that, that importance of the blue ribbon or the shiny stuff or the judge, you realize that um, really if, if you're happy with your horse and you're happy with how your horse worked, it doesn't matter what the judge says. And there were a lot of things leading up for me to this, this idea. Um, one was watching my parents. Um, I watched my mom ride out of a show arena. I can still remember, I can still remember like it was yesterday. It was in actually in Reno at the big paint horse show and she didn't get a ribbon, big class. She didn't get anything. Oh man, she was, she had the biggest grin on her face because she felt like that horse had the best go she'd ever had. She didn't win anything. And she was absolutely ecstatic. I also remember watching my dad ride out of a brain working cow horse class and they were giving uh, for prizes, they were giving silver dollars, like the real ones, you know, like real 1800 silver dollars yeah. in a little bag. And the girl giving the awards, she hands him his little bag for first place and he doesn't take it. He just looked at her and he said, give it to the guy behind me. This horse didn't, this horse and I didn't earn it. And he rides out. He won, but he was really upset yeah. um, because he did not feel like he had a good go. Yeah. Um, and then I showed a horse, I showed a little stud horse in the cow horse classes some years ago in Reno, again, at a big multiple judge show. And uh, the, uh, the, the steer stopper as was the class that really showed this. Ran out there, wrote my steer, stopped my steer. There was a 12 judge show. I got everything from first place to nothing. And th these judges are all sitting there in a row watching the same thing. I got first, first, second, third, first, nothing, sixth. It was just all over the board. And that, that was a really good lesson that it ain't about the judge. 
or it, it, it doesn't need to be, and it probably shouldn't be because really the judge's opinion doesn't matter. What it matters is the horse's opinion and how well the horse and I work together. When I started thinking that way, um, lo and behold, I started winning a lot more. I mean, really, I started winning. It was, I, and this isn't, it isn't, this is, I don't want this to come across wrong. And like, I'm not trying to brag about this. This is, for me, this is an important thing. It was an important lesson for me. Um, that little mare that I started showing, her name was Bunny. She's a little dun mare. Um, literally every class I ever showed her in, she won. Every time. Because I took the time. And it was everything from AQHA ranch horse class to a, the cowboy dressage world show in a couple of events to, I mean, it was just because I took the time. And I was like, when I took her um, big show on the West coast, um, a place called golden grand to give you an idea how big that show is. It's one of the biggest open shows in the Western United States. Um, they give, uh, belt buckles in every class all the way down to 10th place <laughs> yeah that's how big it is yeah um and i showed her in the ranch horse class i was actually there to do a garocha demonstration and some people said hey are you gonna are you showing in the ranch horse class i said what ranch horse class they said the ranch horse class i'm like well what is it they showed me the pattern and like what you did and i went well yeah we can do that ended up three days three judges I didn't think we were going to do well because one of the judges was from Texas and one was from Oklahoma. And I thought, yeah, they're not going to like this horse. Turns out they did. Um, and literally three days before that show, we were out in the desert, Nevada, Dr. Nearlings. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I showed up to the show. Um, I, I was a little late getting packed and I was literally like, like wiping blood off of some of my gear because we we're doctor and doctor and cattle. Um, and turns out the Texas judge at the end of the show, after everybody was done, he comes up and asked me if I was going to bring that mare to the world show. Um, because he said, you know, this is a ranch horse. This is, you know, yeah, this is it. This is what, what people need to see. But the key was two things. One, I took the time with that mare. Two, I did a lot more than just train for a pattern. Um, and three, I just went and had fun. I didn't care if I won. I was just like, I didn't even plan on entering the, the class when I got there. So I was just there. I'm like, I'm going to go have a good time. But what was more important to me than winning the buckle was the comments I got in the warm-up arena. People actually came up to me surprised because I didn't ride any differently in the warm-up arena than I did in the show arena. She was in the two ring. I rode her one-handed. I did a little bit of warm up. We did a few, you know, few things to warm up and a few little maneuvers to make sure everything was, you know, everything was spot on and we didn't, you know, and that was it. And I had more people comment about that. And to me, that was actually more important than winning the buckle yeah. because it was more about setting an example that people could look at and go, you know, Maybe I don't need to ride in that warm-up arena and go yanking on my horse's face like all the rest of these idiots are doing, uh, which there was a bunch of them doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I don't have to have to spur the you know spur the heck out of my horse and drive a spur through their ribs and yank on the bit in order to go win a class. 
yeah. um, which other people were doing. So to me, that was a bigger win than the belt buckle. Um, so yeah. So that's kind of how like with the show stuff and then kind of how things developed up up through while I was in Nevada and, and you know, kind of the time in Nevada and um, the time in Nevada was good. Um, I'm not a big fan of the desert. You know, Moses might have been able to wander the desert for 40 years, but I didn't make it that long. Um, I like when things are a little more green, but but it was a good experience. So, yeah. And so how did it open up or how did it, you get the opportunity to start doing some some clinics? Is that sort of kind of what happened next? Yeah, it was kind of, honestly, it's kind of an accident, to be honest. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of teaching and stuff before that, um, but not really in a clinic format. Everything was more, I'd done a lot of teaching with individual lessons. Um, I, did, I did one clinic um, in Nevada, I think before I started traveling internationally and doing all of that. Um, but really, it was completely by accident. Uh, a couple things happened. Um, one, I went to, there, there was an event that they used to have called the Californios and it was kind of billed as a show and roping event to highlight the old California horsemanship. Right. And, um, it was originally, it was uh, hosted in Red Bluff, California. So I went to watch just to go see what all the hype was about. And Honestly, and this might make some people mad, but that's okay. I'm, that's all right. Um, I wasn't, I'm not going to say I wasn't, imp- I was going to say that I wasn't impressed with what I saw, but that's not really kind of the correct way to say it. Um, what I saw was not what I grew up with in terms of California horsemanship. Um, I was impressed by some of the Riata roping. Absolutely. Some of the loops the guys were throwing, some of that stuff, I was absolutely impressed. But in terms of the horsemanship and the focus on horsemanship was not what I grew up with on the central coast of California around San Inez, Santa Barbara, um, Paso Robles, those areas. Um, A lot of focus was on the roping. A lot of the focus was on the fancy loops. And when I was watching the the Hackmore class and the two-ring class and the bridal class, was just like, mm, not what I expected, I guess is a better way to put it. I was a little disappointed in what I was seeing. Um, and so I went home with that kind of in my mind thinking, okay, this is supposed to be the premier event to highlight and to showcase the old California horsemanship, but I'm not seeing the old California horsemanship. I'm seeing the roping part. Absolutely. I mean, some of those guys, some of the loops those guys were throwing were, were phenomenal. But the horsemanship, it was a little different. Those horses, nothing, not taking anything away from the horses. They were really good working horses. So they were really good ranch horses, really good working horses. But in the world that I grew up with, a true California bridal horse was more than that. There was, there, there was something extra about it. Um, you could go do any job on the ranch, but you should also be able to go and, and go win a few ring working cowhorse classes in the open division with the big boys for real. But you also could do more. You know, your, your wife could go get on that horse and go jump the horse the next week. You know what I mean? It was, it was that. Um, and I just wasn't seeing it. So that got the wheels turning. And then the other thing that got the wheels turning was 
I had a lot of, I had some people that were wanting some, some roping um, training, some, you know, some schooling, some information. I had a few students um, or people that, that approached me that wanted to take some lessons and, um, and they said, man, I've, I've been looking at all the videos and looking at all the stuff and I can't find what I'm looking for to really improve my roping. And the problem was in the videos was the same thing that I saw in the, in the California's event. And that was the focus was so much on the loops and the roping that there just wasn't anything out there on how to even prepare your horse to get the horse ready to rope. Cause a lot of these people, they hadn't roped and they didn't have a rope horse. Right. So I did a video just, it, it was one of those. Yeah. I had a, a buddy there who, um, who did some video production work and he thought it would be fun, just kind of a cool thing. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so we shot this video and lo and behold, some folks saw the video and um, some folks in Europe saw the video. Um, the first two places I went when I, when I went to Europe was Germany and the Czech Republic. Two guys saw the video on the roping specifically. Yeah. And they sent me an email and said, hey, do you wanna come teach clinic? Uh, uh, okay um they bought my plane ticket and off i went and and literally i would never met these folks had no idea and some people said well what happens if they don't show up I'm like well i got a return ticket two weeks later so i guess i'll just run around germany for two weeks probably for two weeks yeah. see what happens yeah can't lose so it just that's what happened and then from there the clinic thing happened i didn't i didn't intentionally ever i didn't ever have the idea that, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a clinician. I'm going to, you know, that was never a, a goal or an idea or anything. It just kind of happened. And I did the first clinics and two turned into four, turned into six, turned into eight, turned into um, one year. I did, um, I did 56 clinics one year and that was stupid. It was too much, but um, you know, there's uh, yeah, 52 weeks, uh, 50, yeah, no, no, too many clinics. Um, and then that's just kind of, kind of how it's, it developed from there. And it was an awesome opportunity though, for me to further develop my horsemanship. And it was, for me, it was great because I was at the time in my, in, in, in my, my mindset. And, and I guess I was a lot more mature for sure than I was in my twenties, um, when I hit the ground in Europe, I immediately just started hunting for people who could do things that I couldn't do and that I couldn't find in the U.S. Um, now, I had to learn a lot of stuff. I'd learn almost completely different horse language. Um, I remember one of the first clinics in Germany. We were, yeah, yeah, you too. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. First, one of the first clinics in Germany, I was working a little bit on leg yields. We were talking about leg yields and how it applies to cow work and all that. And one of the students asked me, he said, well, do you do Travazala? And I went, uh, no. <laughs> and one of the other students said, she means half pass. I'm like, oh yeah, of course we do half pass. I had no idea what these words even meant right. because I'd never been exposed to them. I had read some of the old masters like Pluvenel and, and those old masters. But of course I, I read it all in English and it was translated into something I understood. And at the time, if I didn't understand it, I just kind of glossed by whatever it was and went through the stuff I understood. Um, 
So I really had the opportunity then to really expand my own, um, my own knowledge base. And it really took off when I um, started working with some of the Baroque trainers and the Spanish trainers, spending time in Spain, spending time with the Baroque trainers and seeing the connection where the old California horsemanship and where the old war riding really connected. And that was a big, for me, that was a big, um, a big step forward for me is again, going all the way back to what you said at the beginning of this, the why, understanding the why. Why did they do it this way? Why did the Spanish do the things they did? Um, it, it helped me to understand a lot better. When I started meeting people who were actually still fighting on horseback, like actively fighting, like really beating the crap out of each other. Um, and then with the Spanish, when they're working with those Spanish cattle, I mean, you don't just go out and move cows in Spain the way we would in America or New Zealand. Um, you better be on something that is pretty handy or you're going to die. Um, so understanding why, and, and that was a big, big thing for me, um, and getting to travel really helped that happen. Absolutely. I think that, um, I think that's true for anybody anywhere, regardless of their interests or, or their current understanding, getting to travel and see different cultures or different ways that people do things and live can sure broaden your, broaden your view. And so I got to admit, I'm. I'm pretty jealous of some of the places you've been over there and, and the, the history you've been able to dig into and the people you've ridden with and stuff. That's, that's definitely on my bucket list. And, and I can totally see how that would have just really filled out and fleshed out your understanding in, in the way you were raised and, and your, and your understanding the horses and the history there, just taking that to just a whole nother level. And that's something that I just have always really appreciated um, in the time I've been able to spend with you is I, I love the history. I just love the history too. And well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to American Cowboy in New Zealand. If you like this episode, please share and leave your five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.